All right. Good morning, Crossway. Ooh, kind of loud. Good morning. All right. Um, so today I have the honor and pleasure of mining for silver with you all as we continue through the book of First Peter. And we will be looking at chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. Okay. Well, before we uh, go there, I think it will be helpful for us to recall some of the things that Peter has talked about up to this point in his letter. In the first section of his letter, Peter has laid out for us a theological understanding of our salvation. In chapter 1, he reminds us that we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And as a result, God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We were ransomed from our futile ways with the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, as children of God, Peter states that we should no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but rather we are called to be holy in all our conduct because God who called us is holy. Peter goes on to say that we are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he ends this previous section by describing us believers as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who caught us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What an amazing salvation. How awesome and wonderful are the things that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This great salvation compels us to ask the question, how then should we live as born-again Christians? More specifically, how should Christians live in a society that is not only unbelieving, but is hostile to Christianity? The passage for today marks a transition in Peter's letter by introducing his central concern, and that is Christians ought to live rightly within their pagan society. Hence, the title for today's message is, As God's People Live Godly Lives. As God's People Live Godly Lives. We will see that Peter uses the, the theology of salvation to shape his readers' way of looking at the world, and through that, their way of living in the world. In other words, our identity with the world should affect how we live in the world. With that, let's look at our passage for today. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 to 17. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word today. Humble us before your word and use it to convict and transform our lives. Please help me to communicate your word clearly now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Peter starts out with uh, this section with a sweet term of endearment. He, he addresses readers as beloved, right, reminding them that he cares for them and loves them deeply as his family in Christ. As a side note, when I was reading through 1 Peter to prepare for this message, I, I was struck by Peter's gentleness and tenderness throughout the letter, which, if you recall, is strikingly different than the Peter we encounter in the Gospels, which, is, which was uh, brash, impulsive, self-assertive, and strong-willed. So seeing this transformation, Peter was a, a sweet reminder of the transforming power of God to, in, in our lives. So, so Peter calls his readers beloved to show that his love for them, to show his love for them, but also, as one commentator pointed out, it communicates the idea that they are beloved of God. So in a way, Peter is telling them, yes, you are dear to me, but more important than that, you are dear to God because he has chosen you to be his people. And as the beloved chosen people of God, believers are by definition aliens of this world. Peter first mentioned this, through, uh, mentioned this thought in chapter 1, um, but here in verse 11, he reminds them again that they are sojourners and exiles. So Peter laid out this whole theology of salvation in the first part of his letter to illustrate that something extraordinary happened to a believer at, at their salvation. They were ransomed from their old ways, caught out of darkness, and born again. The new birth that gives Christianity a new identity and a new citizenship in the kingdom of God also simultaneously makes them aliens of this world. So now the translated word exile here can be a bit misleading. He doesn't mean exile in the sense that Christians are um, banished or expelled from, from their home country, but rather the word used here denotes the idea as of, of people residing outside their homeland, like a resident alien or foreigner. So my family and I immigrated to America from Vietnam in, in, back in 1991. And at that time, I was, I was literally a resident alien and a foreigner in a strange land. Everything was different to me at first, like the food, the language, the people, even the things people celebrated. So imagine my shock and confusion at our first Halloween. It's like, what? You get free candy from just by dressing up as a box? Sure, I'm in. You know, however, there's a major difference between my life story and Peter's exhortation to his readers. See, I eventually got used to the food. I enjoy it, actually. I got used to the people. I don't view myself differently than any, any other American. I got used to the language. Unless you ask my wife who would tell you that I'm still in the process of learning English. The fact is, after living here for five years, my parents passed the naturalization test, and I became a citizen of the United States in case some of you guys were wondering. <laughs> Peter, however, never calls believers to become citizens of this world. So on the contrary, he calls us to always remember and embrace the fact that we are foreigners of this world because our citizenship is eternally in heaven. So in view of our identity as foreigners, Peter exhorts us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So first of all, what are these passions of the flesh that Peter talks about? What should we be abstaining from? Well, he listed a few of them um, in the beginning of this chapter in verse 1, where he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. 
Paul also speaks of this in Colossians 3, chapter 5, where he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. But probably the most thorough list in the Bible is found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, which reads, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, fits of anger rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. This is a long list, but it is not exhaustive. One commentator puts it simply, the passion of the flesh are sinful desires to indulge in things or to satisfy bodily desires in ways that are contrary to God's will for us. They are any uncurbed human impulses. So the desire for sex or sexual pleasure outside of marriage, the desire to dress in a way that's sensual and attractive to the world, like the idea of dressing sexy and showing cleavage, the desire to gossip or to speak down of others, the desire to complain and grumble, the desire for coarse joking, the desire to alter our minds and emotions through alcohol and drugs. As Christians, we must abstain from these things. Now, the fact that Peter tells us to abstain from these things, these sinful desires, implies two things. First, these sinful desires are still within us, even though we are born again. And secondly, we are able to, to have control over them. Right? So as long as we are on this earth, we are trapped within our, our old, unredeemed human flesh, which is why there is a constant internal battle within us between the spirit and our flesh. However, we have been freed from the sin's nature, from sin nature's power. We are no longer a slave. We can have control over it and even abstain from it, as Peter urges us to do. So it makes no sense for someone to claim that they are a born-again Christian and say things like, I, I was born this way. I was born rude or sarcastic or mean, or I was just born with these desires and I can't help it. Actually, yes, you can, and you must if you are truly born again. Peter tells us to abstain from all such things. To abstain means to voluntarily choose not to do, not to do or have something, right? It, it contains the idea of self-denial, um, holding yourself back, or in other words, have nothing to do with the passion of the flesh. Keep yourself away from them completely. Don't even entertain them for a moment. Sadly, our society is full of people owned by their desires and reckless indulgences. The truth is many of us in the church are the same way. Right? In, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 10, Solomon speaks of self-indulgence. He says, And whatever my eyes desire, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. This is the anthem of the world, but sadly it has seeped into the church. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. Have you seen these things in the church? Have you seen these things in yourself? When we habitually give in to the passions of our flesh, we become Christians that are characterized more by worldliness than holiness. We become foreigners that look more and more like the natives. This is completely contradictory to the new life we have in Christ. 
So not only that, but these sinful desires are by nature destructive to us. Peter says here that it wages war against our soul. I believe we as Christians do not give this reality enough serious consideration. One commentator says the phrase waging war implies not just antagonism, but a relentless, malicious aggression. There is something inside of you that is constantly trying to destroy you. If you often find yourself spiritually weak or ineffective, ask yourself this, are you living in sin? Are you allowing the flesh any foothold in your life? Sin by nature is deceitfully destructive. Is this not why the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew 5, if your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And if your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Of course, he wasn't speaking literally or else we'd all be blind and handicapped. But he was using this hyperbole to illustrate the seriousness of sin. Right? We must have an uncompromising attitude towards the killing of sin. In his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Cham- Chambers calls his principle in Matthew 5 as, as the strictest discipline. Killing sin should be one of our strictest discipline. We must be uncompromising, unrelenting, and thorough. I'd like to read a short quote from J.C. Ryle from his book, Thoughts for Young Men. He says, look within each one of you, examine your own hearts. Do you see there any habit or custom which you know is wrong in the sight of God? If you do, don't delay for a moment in attacking it. Resolve at once to lay it aside. Nothing darkens the eyes of the mind so much and deadens the conscience so surely as an allowed sin. It may be be a little one, but it is not any less dangerous. A small leak will sink a great ship, and a small spark will kindle a great fire, and a a little allowed sin in like manner will ruin an immortal soul. Take my advice and never spare a little sin. His main audience in that book is young men, but really it is applicable for all of us. Do you have any allowed sins in your life? The ones that seem harmless and insignificant? Remember this, even the little sins that you allow in your life is waging war against your soul. Not only are we to abstain from sinful desires, but we are to maintain a good conduct among the Gentiles. Verse 12 reads, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A few years ago, I went on a short-term mission trip to El Salvador. And what we would do there each day is um, we'll go into different cities in groups of two or three, and we would do street evangelism. Right? Well, the idea is that the, the local people would be curious and even maybe even attracted to us because we look different. Right? And, and it's true. It works. Like all types of people from all ages would stop and just, just talk to us. And so we were able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with many of them, all because we look different. I believe Peter is applying a similar logic here. A similar logic here. A major implication of being sojourners and exiles in this world is that we are being watched. By who? Peter says Gentiles here, but, but he's basically talking about unsaved people. Right? As foreigners of this world, Christians are being watched by this world's unsaved citizens. And what do they watch? They watch our conduct. They're looking to see if we live the way we preach. Do our actions match our beliefs? 
Therefore, Peter exhorts us to keep our conduct honorable. MacArthur in his commentary noted that the word translated honorable is actually rich and varied in its definition. So I looked it up in a Greek dictionary, and, and he's right. right. So here are some of the other definitions of the, of the Greek word. It says, it says beautiful, handsome, excellent, choice, surpassing, precious, suitable, commendable, admirable. Is your day-by-day manner of life beautiful and commendable? As you drive around town, how do you interact with other drivers? When you, when you are at Walmart and the, and the employees aren't very helpful, which is like 90% of the time, how, how do you react? Right? What, what about the workplace? How do you act when you are stuck in a job um, that you do not like and your coworkers are terrible and lazy? Right, what, what, if you are, what if you are married to an unsafe spouse who is difficult and unkind? Peter actually addresses that later in, in the chapter, but, but the principle is the same. Right, in these situations and all other interactions that we may have with the world, we are called to the highest standard of conduct. But why? Why is the standard so high? Peter says it's because it is for the glory of God. Right, it says we are to... We are to keep our conduct excellent so that even when, believers, even when unbelievers slander and speak evil of us, they would see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation, which is referring to the future final judgment. The, the implication here is that our good conduct among Gentiles would change people's minds and may even lead some to faith and ultimately glorify God in the end. What a sobering thought that our day-to-day interactions with unbelievers may have eternal significance. The principle is also found in, in the gospel. In Matthew 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. One commentator says, the world takes its notions of God, most of all from the people who say that they belong to God's family. They read us a great more than they read the Bible. As Christians, our conduct should have the highest standard. How terrible would it be for us to bring shame to God because of our bad conduct? How shameful would it be for unbelieving neighbors to have better conduct than we do? We should give unbelievers no justifiable reason to speak evil of us or God. So, in the midst of frustrations with your neighbors or dealing with rude people at the store or doctor's office or people cutting you off on the road or any other terrible things that people of this world may do to you, keep your conduct honorable. Do not bring shame to God, but but rather glorify him through your conduct. Here's one last thought before we move on. Many of us have children. Many of us have unsaved children. And like the world, our unsaved children are constantly looking at us, are constantly watching us. They watch us even more closely than the world does. You know, and we know this because they repeat everything we say, you know, sometimes to our shame. So as parents, are, are you mindful of your conduct around your children? Does your behavior lead your children to glorify God? Or does it lead them to question 
God's transforming power in your life. To close out this session, I think Wayne Grudem effectively summarizes verses 11 and 12 this way. He says, Christians living in unbelieving society must avoid sinful desires and continually maintain exemplary patterns of life so that unbelievers will be saved and God glorified. All right. Having exhorted believers on their general conduct among Gentiles, Peter moves on to address a specific type of conduct, which is submission to authority. Right? It's our favorite thing, right? Verse 13, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So at this point, it would be reasonable for a reader Peter's letter to ask the question, since we are foreigners and strangers of this world and our citizenship is in heaven, do we have to submit to the authority of this world? And the answer Peter gives is emphatically yes. Yes, we do. Our citizenship in heaven is, and our allegiance to God do not exempt us from submitting to pagan authority. So submission in general is not a popular topic, right? Especially in this day and age where, where personal fulfillment is king, right? As sinners, we do not naturally like authority. And if, if, we, if, we, if we are to be honest, None of us naturally wants to submit to anyone else, not all the time, at least. We often push back against authority and even make bumper stickers that encourage people to question authority. So any command to submit can rub us the wrong way, but it is a consistent teaching in the Bible. In verse 13, Peter says that we should be subject to every human institution, even the emperor and governing authorities appointed by him. To be subject to someone or, or something is the idea of submitting yourselves willingly by obeying. So willing submission means that we are not doing it while grumbling and complaining. We are not doing it as if we are being forced to, but rather we do it voluntarily because, as we will see, it honors God. Paul gives a similar com uh, command in Titus 3, 1, where he says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And of course, in Romans 13, Paul says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. As Christians, we know and affirm that God is the highest authority, and we must obey him. But we also must recognize that all authority on earth comes from God, right? We see this principle proclaimed during Jesus' trial in John 19, Pilate says to Jesus, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And what was Jesus' response? You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. God in his wisdom has established patterns of authority for all human institutions, which includes the workplace, marriage, the home, the church, and even human government. Peter specifically mentioned here uh, emperors and governors to emphasize the role of government to rule. So as Christians, we are not called to be po uh, politically and so socially subversive. Consider this, both Peter and Paul were living during a time when Christians were under extreme persecution from the Roman Empire. <clears throat> right? They were not living under honorable and righteous governments, yet they both commanded Christians to submit to government authority. That is the standard that we are being called to, 
And that is a hard calling. But look at the motivation, gives, uh, motivation Peter gives us. He says that we should submit for the Lord's sake. So the idea is that since God is the one who appoints these uh, rulers, it both pleases and honors him when we subject ourselves to government, to human government, even to human authorities who are neither believers nor morally upright. So we obey willingly because we desire to honor God. We don't do it for man. Paul says in Romans 13 too, therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. So we may not like or respect the man or woman in office. We may not like their policies, but we respect the office because it was ordained by God. And Peter also makes the point that human government is generally good for us. Right? He says in verse 14 that their job is to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. So let me ask you this. What does it look like when people are not subject to any type of authority? When there's no organized government? We end up with anarchy. Right? So you end up with a society that's in chaos and disorder. So you have riots in the streets, you have people burning cars and buildings, you have flash mobs running through stores, destroying and stealing. Peter reminded his readers that government has a valid and necessary God-appointed purpose to keep order in society. He goes on to say that we submit not only to honor God, but also because it is God's will for us. He says in verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. For this is the will of God. So this is referring back to Peter's original command, which is in verse 13, to be subject to every human institution. God's will for us is to do good by submitting ourselves to human institutions, which would result in silencing the ignorance of foolish people. The idea is very similar to what Peter said in verse 12. Willful submission to human authority is one way we can keep our conduct among unbelievers honorable, right? And in both cases, God is glorified. In one case, the, the unbeliever would glorify God in the future, and in, in, and in the other case, by silencing foolish people, we would be stopping them from dishonoring God. So God's glory is the motivation for both commands. But, but notice Peter's repeated emphasis in these sections. In both verses 12 and 15, he mentions the way unbelievers speak about us. Right? The implication, I think, is that they are watching us, and that's why they're talking about us. They speak of us as evildoers and slanderers through their ignorance. And as such, I believe another important principle that we should take away from this is that we should be conscious and care about what and how the world thinks of us. Right? Not, not because we have the fear of man and we hope that they would like us and accept us for our own sake, but, but we should care because what unbelievers think of us may either glorify God or dishonor him. So at the very least, we should not do anything in the world to dis- anything that would dishonor the name of God. How shameful would it be for us to be viewed as hypocrites, those who preach to others great and wonderful things, but they themselves live just like the rest of the world. Our behavior should be above reproach. We should not give anyone grounds to slander us as Christians, and this applies to our submission to human government. Hey, before we move on, I want to make it the point that we submit willingly, but not unconditionally. So we look at the Bible as a whole, we'll see that there are exceptions for civil disobedience. In instances where we must choose to either obey God or to obey man. And in such cases, 
<clears throat> we must never allow the law to make us disobey or act in a manner that is contrary to God's word. So the principle would be to obey except when commanded to sin. Right, so um, here are a few examples of civil disobedience from Scripture. Um, in Acts 4, when the governing officials charged Peter to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, he replied by saying, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And in the next chapter, Acts 5, Acts 5 Peter was arrested again and brought before the council with the same charge, and Peter answered them more clearly, saying in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, other examples would be in Daniel 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego uh, refused to bow down to the golden idol in disobedience to King Nebuchadnezzar. And then also in chapter 6, <clears throat> Daniel defies King Darius' decree to not pray to anyone other than the king. So, again, there are instances for civil disobedience, but for Christians, that must be the exception not the norm, right? All right, Peter continues with verse thir- uh, 16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. So this past Tuesday, we celebrated July 4th with fireworks, right? And this year, as with every other year, I was shocked by the prices of fireworks. Like, you want me to spend this much money on things that I'm going to end up burning? And it's only going to last a few seconds. It's insanity, but, but they got my money. And, <clears throat> and our family got our few minutes of joy. <clears throat> but July 4th, or, or Independence Day, is, isn't really about fireworks, right? At least it's not supposed to be. It's the day we celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776, which was when we as a nation declared our independence against Great Britain. Leading up to that point, Patrick Henry famously said in his speech, give me liberty or give me death. Right, a few decades later, Francis Scott Key wrote what, what would later become um, our national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner, in which he called America the land of the free. Right, so freedom is a wonderful thing. Right, and as Americans, we talk much about our freedoms. Peter, however, speaks of freedom in a different way. Right, having, command, ha- having commanded believers to submit to all human institutions, Peter recognizes the danger of sounding oppressively restrictive, and his readers might think of submission to human authorities as a kind of slavery. So he tells, them, he tells us in verse 16 to live as people who are free. In other words, we are to submit willingly as, as those who are free and not as those who are under subjection. But, we, but, but are we free to do whatever we want? No, because he, said, he then says in the same verse that we are to live as servants of God. Well, then how are we free? Well, Romans 8, chapter one, uh, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus also says in John chapter 8, verse 34, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The freedom that Jesus and Paul proclaim is the freedom from sin, freedom from his condemnation, from his penalty, and from his bondage and power. The freedom of a Christian is the power to do what God wants us to do. In regards to sin, we are free people indeed. But Peter cautions us here not to use that spiritual freedom as a cover-up or as an excuse for 
to do evil, right? And, and in this context, it is specifically the evil of not submitting to rulers. So we must not think, since I am free in Christ, I will submit to no man. Peter ends verse 16 with the main reason why we should be subject to every human institution is because we have become servants of God. A more accurate translation for the word servants would be bondservants or slaves of God. Right? Paul says in Romans 6 that we are either going to serve sin, which leads to death, or serve God, which leads to righteousness. Paul goes on to say of believers that being set free from sin, we have become slaves of God. It's fruit being eternal life. So we are either a slave to sin or a slave to God. Christians, we were bought with a price. We were ransomed from our futile ways. We have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. We owe him our whole lives and our entire being. But slavery to God is a good thing, right? As, as the verse says, it is life-giving and it leads to righteousness and eternal life. Paradoxically, genuine freedom is experienced only by God's slaves. One commentator says, true liberty, according to the New Testament, means freedom to do what is right. Thus, only those who are slaves to God are genuinely free. Therefore, as slaves of God, we must obey him by submitting to the authority that he has ordained on, on earth. We should not act as if we are free to do whatever we want. Peter ends this section with four commands. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. MacArthur calls these commands as Peter's citizenship theology. In a way, it is the summary of how believers as citizens of heaven should live in the world. The first two commands address social groups, society versus Christian community, <clears throat> and the last two commands address two authority groups, our authority in heaven and our authority on earth. The first command is to honor everyone. So to honor someone is to treat them with respect, <clears throat> to bestow a value upon that person. Right? As Christians, we believe that all people have value. You know, humans did not just evolve from monkeys. Neither are we just gene machines programmed to reproduce ourselves, as the biologist Richard Dawkins claims. The Bible tells us that the worth of all people is derived from the fact that God created every person as human beings, in his image. For that reason alone, all people are worthy of honor. Whether they are rich or poor, male or female, young or old, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, even sinners are to be respected and honored to some degree as human beings. All people reflect the image of God and should be treated with dignity and respect. Next, Peter commands us to love the brotherhood. All humans should be respected, but there is a special bond between fellow believers. The Greek word Peter used here is the verb form of agape, love, which is the strongest and deepest form of love. It is the love that is described in 1 Corinthians 13. And Jesus uses the same word when he commands us to love one another in John 13. Verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christians should love one another deeply because each one of us has been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. And our standard of love between believers should be the same standard of love that Christ shows towards us. It is a deep, sincere, sacrificial love 
a love that is not of this world and unique to Christians. This love is long-suffering. It is quick to overlook an offense. It, it is quick to forgive. Bitterness has no place in the love between Christians. Our love should look radically different than the love of the world. And as Christ says, it is by this love for one another that the world will know that we are his followers. In fact, the strong union between fellow Christians is such that it is best described in terms of family. <clears throat> right? Jesus says in Matthew 12, 48, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Believers may not be biologically related, but we have all been adopted into the family of God, and we ought to love one another deeply. The next command Peter gives is to fear God. In the most general sense, God should be feared because of his overwhelming power. As one commentator puts it, God alone determines existence and non-existence. Think about that. The only reason anything is anything is because God purposed it to be. God spoke the universe into being, and he can measure the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. God's power is unfathomable. God should also be feared because he is holy and righteous and therefore can tolerate no sin. In his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, John Murray says, Sin is the contradiction of God, and he must react against it with holy indignation. This is to say that sin must meet with divine judgment. God hates sin, and if you have not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, you should fear God in that way. But Peter was speaking to believers, those who have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Thus, we fear God in a different way. I think what Pastor Mark said last week was really helpful, so I will quote his quote from Jerry Bridges. Uh, He defines the fear of God as loving reverence by which we humbly and carefully obey all of God's commandments. So a believer fears God by humbly and carefully obeying all of his commandments, and our, our motivation stems from our love and reverence for him. Right? We love God, so we should fear doing anything that would displease him. We revere God, so we should fear doing anything that would dishonor or shame him. And I would also add that, that as his children, believers should fear doing anything that would lead God to discipline us, like a father lovingly disciplines his children, as it says in Hebrews 12. Believers ought to fear God by seeking to please and honor him as obedient children, because he is worthy of all praise and glory. We now come to Peter's final command in this section, honor the emperor, which brings this whole issue full circle back to the basic command of verse 13, be subject to every human institution. So as Christians, we should honor our rulers willingly and submitting to them, by, by willingly submitting to them. And we submit to them because the authority was given by God. Uh, I think it is worthwhile to know that Peter specifically distinguishes our attitude towards God from our attitude towards the emperor or the ruler. One commentator says here, while positively affirming the obligation to honor the emperor, Peter also subtly implies that contrary to the claims of Roman emperors to be divine, the emperor was by no means equal to God or worthy of the fear due to God alone. So believers may be Republicans or Democrats, 
right? We may support this president or that president. We may prefer this foreign government over this uh, or, or not another foreign government. But our ultimate allegiance must be to God alone. Christians, abstain from worldly desires. Keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers. Submit yourselves to every human authority. Respect everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you alone deserve all glory and worship and praise. You deserve our whole being. And as we seek to honor you through obedience to the commands read today, I, I pray for grace. I pray for grace as we fight to resist our, our sinful desires and to keep our conduct blameless among unbelievers. I pray for grace as we seek to honor those who at times are not honorable. I pray for grace as we struggle to love one another faithfully and sacrificially. And I, I pray for grace as we strive to love you with all hearts, with our souls, with all our minds, and with all our strengths. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.